Welcome to Parenting Unpacked, a place for parents to seek refuge with evidence, empathy, and common sense. Hosted by Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Costantini and Dr. Kristen Summer. Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back. Today we are continuing our series on postpartum depression and anxiety by covering Siobhan's story. So in the last episode in this series, we talked about my experience with postpartum depression and anxiety, and now we bring you Siobhan's. Postpartum depression and anxiety is incredibly common with at least one in five birth parents and one in 10 non-birth parents experiencing some form of mental health issues post the birth of their child. Now, this episode does come with a trigger warning, just like the last one did. This one mentions thoughts of suicide and thoughts of harm. So if this is an episode that seems like it might be a bit confronting for you at this point in your life, then please feel free to skip this one and head straight to our next episode in the series, which is going to be all about recovery and getting better and finding the resources that will help you navigate this new chapter of your life. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please enjoy Siobhan's story. As Kristen said, I, um, I was one of her friends who went overseas. So um, I finished my PhD a few years before Kristen did. Um, and we started at different times. So, so I started before her and finished before her. Um, then I similarly decided I'm not... Actually, I was ready to start looking for jobs when Trump was elected. Um, I decided, sorry, I'm not going to go to America. Um, I can't do that. I don't know. I don't want to do that. I'm sure I could have. Um, I didn't want to. Everything was a bit too um, up in the air for me. Uh, um, Brexit was happening in England. I was like, let's skip that one as well. Where else can I go? I don't speak any other languages. I'm like, I need an English-speaking country. Um, And a job came up in New Zealand. So I'm like, perfect. Very close to Australia. Um, short uh, skip across the, the strait. Um, so I got a job there. I worked in Auckland for three years. Um, I had a very mixed experience um, in my postdoc. The work was wonderful. My colleagues and friends were wonderful. I had a um, challenging time with my boss. Um, for, like She was a wonderful person. Um, we struggled in terms of the... Um, not only the mentor-mentee relationship, but the, the boss and employee relationship was a challenge, uh, to say the least, um, and very much influenced my thinking about not wanting to pursue academia when I came back to Australia. Uh, it just was not the life I wanted, um, the level of stress, the level of politics, um, the inability to... Um, and I think the ego, there, were, there was at least definitely in that environment, and I've seen it replicated in other places, it's not, doesn't have to be that way, but the ego um, and the people getting, tying up um, research results into into their sense of self was so foreign to me. Um, and the idea that you wouldn't pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake and you would um, adjust the findings until you've got the story you wanted um, was very outrageous to me anyway again that's that's another podcast but um but that's just setting the scene um we decided that like Kristen was saying we didn't want to have children overseas um we wanted to be with our families that was really important to us both our families are in Brisbane so that was 
easy that we would wait until we came home to have um, to start our family. I got pregnant in New Zealand. Um, we came back to Brisbane when I was 17 weeks pregnant. Um, I had a really healthy and wonderful pregnancy. I I didn't love being pregnant. It was very much take it or leave it for me. Um, but I didn't have any complications. Everything went really well. I, unlike Kristen, I didn't have any mental health challenges. Um, I also, like Kristen, have had anxiety my whole life. It wasn't until my um, kind of mid twenties uh, that I recognised it for what it was. Partly because when we were growing up, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, there just wasn't the language for it. Um, there wasn't the firstly, there wasn't really an appreciation that children could be anxious, um, or like children are happy or sad, and that's kind of that's kind of how it goes. And if they're sad, it's because they just need to be happy. Um, so. Yeah, so there wasn't a language and there's been so much um, uh, growth and kind of movement forward in terms of an appreciation and understanding of mental health and emotional kind of development, which is really great. But um, yeah, so in my mid-twenties, I, um, this is obviously well before I got pregnant, um, I had um, a series of really intense panic attacks in America when I was there for a conference. Partly tied as I have celiac disease, um, which means I have to follow a strict gluten-free diet, or I risk some really severe reactions. I vomit for hours and hours. So it was middle of winter um, in Philadelphia, snow everywhere. I was freezing. I was jet lagged. I couldn't find food. Um, I couldn't find anything to eat. I I called the hotel desk and said, "Do you have anything that's gluten-free? Do we have some strawberries?" And I'm like, "I haven't eaten for two days. The strawberries isn't going to cut it." Anyway. Um, it was a terrible time. I had lots of panic attacks and that kind of um, really kicked my anxiety into gear um, and it started to become more encompassing and much less manageable. So that continued in New Zealand um, with my challenging work situation. But I was kind of, I was mostly on top of it. I knew, thankfully I knew it for what it was. I, to be fair, wasn't doing everything I could be doing to make it better. Um, I was on medication. Um, my, I had a terrible experience in New Zealand um, with my, not my GP, but a GP I went, I had um, a marina, an IUD, um, so I went to get that taken out. I was on a low-level antidepressant, and this GP basically shamed me for trying to have a baby whilst on an antidepressant um, and said, why wouldn't you, yeah, I know, why wouldn't you wait, why, like, this is just, just wait until you're off it, yeah, I know, wait until I'm off it. Not only is it um, a complete lack of understanding of the research that demonstrates that if a mother is on medication, she should stay on medication. You start don't start messing with her brain chemistry. Um, but also, anyway, again, something we can go into a lot more detail because the research is very clear that um, if you're on medication, you should stay on medication. If if your mental health is under control, you shouldn't change that and then introduce what will become a series of hormonal imbalances. Like it just doesn't make doesn't make sense. I, that the logic behind the thinking, the incorrect thinking, is that there's been some research to show that mothers who are on antidepressants um, have slightly have slightly re, not reduced outcomes, but in terms of like the children are slightly there are some um, it affects the children somewhat. What it doesn't take in, and that's only compared to women who don't take antidepressants. So there's two samples: one who don't take antidepressants, their children's development. Others who do take antidepressants in their children's development. The key 
sample that's missing in that are women who need antidepressants and aren't on them. So like that just doesn't, it's a kind of like saying, if you've got diabetes, just go off your medication. Like there are consequences to that. Yeah. And correlation is not causation. So something that people need to understand that is if you're comparing mothers that need antidepressants versus a general population that aren't on antidepressants, what you'll find is that those mothers might have more mental health challenges. They might have genetic differences. They might have, um, there's so many things that will affect a child's development that could be genetic. It could be environmental and it could have nothing to do with the drug itself. So yeah. Anyways, talk about that later. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, absolutely. So that, um, yeah. so yeah, thanks. Thankful. I mean, not just, I felt terrible. I left I left her, I was, I was proud of myself in the room. I was like, thank you for your advice. I won't be following it. Um, I've done my research. I, yeah, thanks and no. Um, I left, I left the room shaking, um, completely overwhelmed. I called my sister and cried and cried and cried. She was great, um, but it was terrible. I felt um, dehumanized. I felt like I was making a terrible choice, like I was trying to kill my baby or something. I wasn't pregnant. I wasn't even pregnant. Um, yeah, she made me feel terrible and small. Um, thankfully, I, my GP in Australia, who is a family friend and is marvelous, she, um, I spoke to her as well, and she's like, wrong, she's wrong, 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 wrong. Um, she's like, here, I'll give you all of the evidence to show why she's wrong. Um, so that was. I already, again, I already kind of knew it, but it was very, very helpful to sort of validate it and see. So that was, in terms of my um, pre-having had my child, that was kind of the only big challenge I was really dealing with. But thankfully, once I was pregnant, I was fine. Um, everything was really good. Um, then I went into labor. Oh, no, sorry, my waters broke on Christmas Eve. So I have a Boxing Day baby. My waters broke on Christmas Eve in the morning. Um, Oh yeah, it was more of a lot. It was hard. Um, yeah. So um, waited a while. Went into hospital because they say that if you break a risk of infection, um, so we went in. They said you can be in, or you can come. You can go home. I chose to go home um, because they didn't want a Christmas Day baby. I thought that would be unfair and terrible for him. Um, so I kept pushing it and pushing it, um, and we just kept going home. Uh, Finally, we came in and stayed um, on Christmas night at 10 p.m. My contractions were five minutes apart. Um, I'd been awake for a day and a half by the stage. Um, and, yeah, it, well, yeah, let's not get into the birth story. That's another um, – it, it was <laughs> – the funny thing is it's funny how time erases these wounds. Um, recently, someone asked how my birth was, and my husband was with me. I was like, yeah, it's fine. And he's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He's like, don't listen to her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, so, yeah. So, no, it was very long. It was very. I was my again. My so my main my main thing was I was so tired. I was so tired. I was falling asleep in between contractions and like not even falling asleep, just passing out. Um, then finally, I asked for an epidural, which in hindsight I wish I'd done earlier. But you know, you live you live and learn. Um, then I got some sleep, which was the main, like, I'm basically like, I need an epidural because I need to sleep. I did. It was, it was, yeah, it was amazing. I slept, woke up needing to push. Um, and then my baby was born a couple of hours later. 
which was lovely. I also didn't have um, kind of an overwhelming bond moment. Um, I'm really lucky that my mother, sorry, my car's beeping at me. There we go, stop. Um, that my mother had warned me about that. Like she had said, look, I didn't have it with any of you. I love you lots. We're good. So if you don't have it, it's fine. Um, so I didn't get that and I was kind of fine with it. I did have like an overwhelming sense of protection. Um, I like had a, a strong, this is my baby, no one come near it kind of um, attitude. Um, and then the first, I was just, I was just so tired. Um, and that continued for a year. So, uh, to, <laughs> good reason though. <laughs> yeah, there is a reason. Yes. Yeah. So let's, so, um, my baby was, um, he was fine. Oh, he, sorry. No, I shouldn't. Again, back to the birth story. He, um, his shoulders got stuck. So as I was delivering, his, um, his heart rate was fluctuating a bit. Um, they'd put a monitor, um, but I, so in terms of my experience, I was so tired and so out of it that it really, the kind of end of the birth felt very much like an out-of-body experience for me. I wasn't present. Um, I was, I was in, like, I was cognitively present. I knew what was happening, but there was nothing there. So um, I remember my midwife's face getting, like, she looks concerned. And I remember thinking, oh, something's not good. Um, and then I heard her say, he's struggling. And I went, who's struggling? And I went, oh, she means the baby. Then I saw her go, this isn't good. And then she pressed a big red button. No, sorry, her face dropped. She pressed a big red button. Um, 15 people came into the room. And I remember thinking, oh, something's bad. I'm glad there are lots of people here to help. Um, and yeah, yeah. Like it was, but it was like very intellectual, very like, oh, things are bad. People will help. And I was just there. Um, yeah, his shoulders got stuck, his heart rate dropped. Um, they performed a very deep episiotomy and just got him out, um, which I'm very grateful for. He, again, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, it's not fun. Um, but epidural, couldn't feel it. That's great. Um, yeah, so then in my memory, he was on my chest straight away. Um, he wasn't, it turns out. He had to be taken over to be um, kind of worked on and looked after. But again, I, I my immediate thought was, oh, that's done. I can sleep. Um, yeah. So, but then he came over and was mostly fine and things were fine. Um, anyway, we got home. Um, things were fine. I was tired. Um, and then, so uh, backstory, my family has reflux babies. That's what we do. We make um, babies with dodgy tummies. We're very good in this regard. My parents have seven grandchildren. Six of them have reflux, like severe reflux that needs to be medicated. Um, so, yeah, not good odds. How many, um, so we, how many of you have celiac too? Uh, four of seven in my family. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got dodgy tummies. It's just not clever. Um, we have other skills. <laughs> yes. You are still a good person despite your dodgy yeah. tummy. Exactly. Okay. Dodgy tummy. Um, so, uh, yeah, so um, I going when as soon as I was pregnant, well before I had kids, even I knew that that we didn't have good chances. Mm -hmm. um, telling me that too, and saying my your dad made this cot that was like specifically for reflux babies, and it tilted. Like we were pregnant, and like we were talking about it, and yep. I was like, how is, yep. how can you be so certain? And then you were you were certain. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so I 
was always on the sign, like, and, and from the beginning, like, immediately he um, vomited a lot. Um, but again, that's my normal, like, in my babies, in my experience, they throw up. That's all they do, because um, those are the babies that I have, done, have, have always done. Like, it's, it's confusing to me when I see a mother out and she doesn't have a vom rag, like a chuck rag that just with her, because what, do you, what else are you going to wipe all the vom? Some babies don't do it, but that's not been my experience. Anyway, um, so he vomited a lot. He was kind of okay, but he was a grisly, unhappy baby. Then around, we knew that we couldn't give him medication until he was four weeks old. Um, so that was already lined up. Um, and my GP was kind of had the script ready to go as soon as we wanted it. Um, that was kind of the action plan as soon as that happened. Um, but then... We got to four weeks and he was okay. Like, it wasn't great, but it wasn't, didn't seem to be in too much pain. It was manageable. We held him up for a half hour after every feed day and night. Um, we gave him, had him on Gaviscon, which is a, a um, thickening agent for the stomach to help his stomach contents be harder to throw up. So when it comes to gastric reflux, the real issue and the cause of the pain is that there's an increase of stomach acid, or at least this is my child's experience. This is not like you have different situations it's completely fine i respect that but um basically the increased vomit the acid burns the throat and so to begin with it's okay but over time it starts to eat away at the mucus layers and it starts to become incredibly painful so what you want to try and do is minimize the vomiting um because that's what's contributing to the pain and then partly because he was in pain he would try to feed more often because feeding was soothing um and the milk on his throat was soothing but then the more he fed, the more was in his stomach, the more he would throw up. So it was just a vicious cycle. So um, around, it must have been about eight or nine weeks, we went to the doctor, um, to our GP, and said, oh, it's not going great. What could we do? Um, she's like, look, the low sex therapy want it. Um, feel free to try and upping the Gaviscon, making his stomach contents a bit, a bit thicker again. And then at 11 weeks, we um, decided to put him on low-sec omeprazole, which is a um, stomach acid inhibitor. So this is the amount of stomach acid his body produces because the, the logic and the theory is that he has an overactive um, uh, acid production in his stomach. So um, that happened. And also, and the, the main instigator for wanting to do that is he was starting to refuse feeds um, because he had obviously started to associate milk and pain so um, as soon as that happened I went right we can't he needs to eat when I'm not gastric tubes down his nose we need to this as soon as we can so um, we started that and at this stage in terms of my mental health it, it wasn't too bad because I was in solution mode I was like I've got a problem let's fix it um, so that like I was just in decision tree like just let's work through it you ha you have a reason though so I think what might have helped your mental health is that there's a reason that your baby is reacting this way and I think a lot of mothers with babies with colic for example or a highly sensitive baby like I had there's no reason for it so you start attributing it to your own failure as a parent when it's not it's, it's your baby's temperament but at least you had a reason so that might have actually been protective for your mental health because you were like I know what it is I have all of these things I can try before I'm exasperated let's do it so at this point your mental health was okay because you had a reason yep it's not yeah. my fault my baby's in pain I'm doing everything I can um 
then this is where it kind of comes back onto um, very similar to your story. At the 12-week mark, our COVID lockdown started. Um, so I had finally, he was starting, he'd started meds, he'd started starting to do a little bit better. Um, I had kind of come out of the newborn bubble. I was like, right, let's let's experience the world. Let's go out and walk. Let's go meet other mums and babies. And then the world shut down for six or seven weeks. Um, much like you, we had no idea what we were dealing with, as with, along with the rest of the world. It was very scary. Um, people, we didn't know if babies could get it, how they would do it. Like, and I remember at the time thinking, is this another Zika virus? Is my baby, like, every, there was just so much fear and unknown. Like the rest of the world, we just watched the TV the whole day, watching the case numbers, watching scientists try to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, and then, like you, we moved back to be with our family and then we couldn't touch or see anyone for like two months. Um, and then similarly, my mother, um, and father took my grandmother in cause she was at a nursing home, um, or like a, a retirement village. So there was a lot of fear about how that would spread through. So she moved in with them. And so they were in a two week quarantine. Um, so on top of that, and that happened after lockdown. So I didn't get to touch or hold my mum for two months. Um, when I was, had just become a mum myself and I was struggling. I remember we did a, a no contact visit and it was heartbreaking. It was better than nothing, obviously, but I remember just so desperately needing a hug. And like, and this, my mother was equal in, equally in so much pain. She was so desperate to hug me, but she was so scared because we didn't know who had it, how it passed. We, like, we didn't know anything. Anyway, so shit. It was so shit. Um, and can, yeah, and COVID has been horrendous for so many families and people in general um yeah so continue this the um the meds helped timo um my son they helped him it, but he was still in pain um he screamed all day all night um he never slept for longer than like at the at the longest stretch was like two or three hours and that was ever um he yeah so until october 17th 2020 he didn't sleep longer than three hours um so that was 10 months into his life um which of course meant i didn't sleep longer than three hours that was the most sleep i had in a 24-hour period for 10 months yeah and I, I think we need to correct something here too like three hours that was the longest stretch you ever got like it's very normal for babies to do two-hour stretches and wake up in between very briefly and go back to sleep but yeah, and this was like that was the longest you got. What was the like shortest or the average? Oh, uh, twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. Yes. Yeah. So at at its worst, twenty minutes. This is where the problematic thing is. It's twenty minutes was was how long he was sleeping for because it's very normal for babies to sleep for two hours at a time and wake up even up until the first year. No, three hours was the longest, and it, it's not like we got three hours and another three hours. The longest stretch was a three-hour stretch at the beginning of the night. And then it was every, if we, on a really, really good night, it was every 40 minutes. Um, but usually it was every 20 minutes. Yeah, which is. And the three hours, he, he usually woke up for the first hour and I could go in, cuddle him and put him back. Yeah, so they call it false starts, but like that's, yeah, it's not quite a false start. Yeah, yeah. And even I remember um, my mum saying, and I wish, if I could go back, I would listen to her advice so much more because she had reflux babies um and I was I was listening to her as much as I could 
but when you don't have a framework for any of this information, you don't know what it means. Um, anyway, so I'm focusing a lot on Timo sleep because that was by far and away the trigger for me um, and my mental health struggles. I So much of my anxiety was tied with his sleep um, because when he did sleep, he was so restless and so um, he was such a light sleeper because he was in pain. He was in constant pain. Um, anytime he lay horizontally, um, it, it exacerbated the reflux um, and the acid in his throat. So um, he started to associate lying down and pain. So he didn't want to do it. He would fight just being put horizontal. So we raised our cot so that he could at least be somewhat elevated, which of course started to um, put fears about SIDS because um, there are lots of concerns. So I'm trying to balance like, is some sleep better than no sleep versus is my baby going to die? Whilst all trying to process and like decision tree this stuff on no sleep and like you're not good at making decisions sometimes. So it was just, it was torture. It was absolute torture. Um, I don't, the funny thing is, and this is how the like maternal brain works, right? I don't remember his crying anymore. Um, I just remember how it felt in my body. Um, and it, just pure terror um and like I described so Timo is almost two he turns two in a month or so um and the other night was the first time that he cried out in his sleep and I didn't get that um drop in your stomach like you know when you're on a roller coaster and your huge adrenaline rush and your, your whole body goes cold um that was the first time I, I didn't have it um after years I just had a, I had an anxiety response, but it wasn't that tense one. It was just a, oh shit, oh shit, no, he's okay. And then he put himself back to sleep, which was amazing. Yeah. Well, congratulations on small steps. I still like do the whole fling, like out of bed, like I'm, I'm, I'm standing up before I've even woken up. Like, oh, I, I still do that. I still do that, but it's not the, um, it's not the cold sweats. Yeah, I get, um pins and needles in my hands yeah I don't get cold sweats I get pins and needles in my hands when I get that anxiety response so yeah same thing right yes yeah yeah so um yeah still had an anxiety response it was just a reduced one so yay um exactly progress not perfection um yes yeah, so sorry I'm going all over the shop here so um I have yeah my husband and I um obviously would take turns because a single human person can't manage that by themselves um, but I just remember so many nights where we would try, we'd just hold a screaming baby, um, and like we would like the best case scenario was that he would scream himself into exhaustion and fall asleep. Um, so you just hold him and un- un- and you we our our kind of our method was one of us would hold him until we couldn't handle it anymore, and we started to be concerned for his welfare in our care. And then we would tag the other one in. Um, and there were so many exchanges where, and both me and my husband, we both did it, where we'd hand him over and say, I'm, I'm scared, I'm going to kill him, you need to take him from me now. Um, and, like, we had so much empathy and we would talk a lot about, I understand why people shake babies. Like, I, I can't do this. My body is not designed to handle being, like, the, the screaming. And obviously, like, a baby crying and screaming stimulate some such primal spaces in our brain anyway that was our that was our um, life and our normal for the first 
seven months or so um, and it was really hard and really bad. And then around month eight, it got worse. I really didn't, like, I remember thinking, this can't get worse. This will have to get better. It's the only way it can go. And then it got worse. Um, instead of waking every 40 minutes, he started consistently waking every 20 minutes every night. Um, so he'd go down for the night around six, wake up around four, and he would wake every 20 minutes that whole time. Um, we would co-sleep. My family, um, I remember they were so, not angry, that's not the right word, but they were horrified because eventually when they took over, um, which I'll get to, they were like, you don't co-sleep. You lie down in the same bed. There's no sleeping. And I was like, oh, that's what I mean. I mean, like, we're in the bed together. Um, and they're like, but there's no sleeping. I was like, oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't. I just, uh, yeah, there isn't. Um, so we would just doze, and I would doze until the next time. Um, and he would just scream, and he twitched so much in his sleep because he was in pain. Um, and we lived on a really busy road at the time, and um, cars and motorbikes would go and to the point where they were such and still are such a trigger for me like a really loud car with my muffler um spikes my anxiety like no, nothing else because it would wake him and start screaming and when I only had 20 minutes of reprieve I needed it so badly obviously anyway fast forward to yeah eight months um it started being every 20 minutes where he'd literally wake 15 to 20 times a night um and that happened for two months um, and then that's when my body gave out. So like Kristen was saying, I had a full-on nervous breakdown. I couldn't form sentences. I couldn't think, like, people would ask me questions and I'd just stare at them because I didn't understand the words. They, like, it didn't make sense in my brain. Um, I couldn't do simple tasks. I remember trying to make a cup of tea and I just couldn't figure out how to do it in the right order. Um, it was, I just, and everything set me off. And this is where my anxiety really started to, um, show like I I can't even remember the specifics but I remember my dad was making coffee and something about it was wrong and I remember just losing it ran into the other room and had a panic attack um and I remember at the same time he was like what did I do I'm like I don't you didn't do like you didn't do anything but you did something and everything's yeah it was terrible um my GP got me to go see a psychiatrist she was useless I paid $450 for a glorified medical history. I spent two hours. She asked me questions. What did my dad do for a living? Um, uh, how were we raised? And, like, all of that is useful, but I'm in the room struggling to form sentences um, and I'm just desperate for someone to help. Um, similarly, I started to explain to her that I'd started Science Minded um, and how that was giving me a bit of joy because because she, I think she asked, what makes you happy? Does anything make things better? Which I thought was a great question. And I started to explain the work I was doing with Science Minded. Um, and she said, but does it make any money? And I said, well, not at the moment, no, but I hope it will. Um, and she's like, oh, well, you need to do something that's financially worthwhile. And thankfully, firstly wrong and secondly wrong. Thankfully, my, so my husband was in the room with me holding my hand and holding me physically upright. and he went to my defense and he went actually just so you know she's got x number of followers and it's making a huge impact internationally and da, 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 a shout out um so that was very good and made me feel good um yeah so she was useless um but my gp had prescribed me some meds which was we 
Oh, so yes, when we walked in, my um my mum took me to the appointment because my husband with work he couldn't couldn't make it. My mum could. So we walked in. Mum had to physically carry me, basically steer me to the appointment because I couldn't walk properly. So my body had given out. Um, the doctor, my my doctor was asking me questions and I couldn't answer because I just couldn't talk. And my mum went to answer for me, and I remember saying, "No, I can do this." And I'd spend thirty seconds trying to answer a question. Um, and it was just, it was terrible. I really freaked my doctor out. Um, she, um, basically she put me on three weeks bed rest. I wasn't to care for the baby. I was allowed to feed him and that was all. Um, I wasn't to be left alone with him. Um, I'm so grateful. As soon as we left the appointment, she called my husband to check how he was. Um, because yeah, she called him and said, how are you doing? This sounds horrendous. And she checked on him, also fact-checked the information, which was very sensible, um, and, and reiterated to him she is not to be left alone with the baby. She's not safe with herself or the baby because um, the doctor had asked me um, had I had any psychosis. And I remember, you know, what, what do you mean? She's like, oh, you know, hearing voices. It's like, oh, no, none of that. She's like, no, no, no. Visualizing yourself throwing the baby off the balcony. I was like, oh, yeah, definitely that. Yeah, I've had that too. <laughs> Yeah, and I went, and she went, what? I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't been on the balcony for two weeks because I don't trust myself to. Mm, I'm terrified of stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Intrusive thoughts are terrifying. Yeah, and I, I, the only thing that was comforting for me was that I've had intrusive thoughts my whole life, so I was very familiar with them. Um, I thought they were normal, though. Like, that's where it comes dangerous, where you're like, oh, this is normal. It's, not, it's, it's an indicator that you have an anxiety issue. Um, intrusive thoughts of a dangerous nature, like driving off a bridge, which is my favorite one um, that I experience when I drive over bridges um, or dropping your child down the stairs or over the balcony, dangerous. Um, doesn't mean you want to do it, but scary. I, and previously my intrusive thoughts, I've been able to counter them very easily being like, well, I'm not gonna do it, so easy. Um, however, they started to scare me because I couldn't convince myself I wasn't gonna do them and I started to have um, they were paired with really intense visual hallucinations. I started to get very, very graphic visualizations of what those actions would look like. Um, so that was very confronting. Um, and I shared that with my doctor and that's, that like, scared her appropriately, um, which is why. So yeah, I was put on bed rest. I started, I got some sleep. So basically I'm beyond lucky that this level of support was available to us. My mother-in-law, my sister and my mum took it in and my husband took it in turns to do the night shift um that's at that point we night weaned my baby because we just cold turkey night weaned him he I think he, he had a bottle sometimes of breast milk um but that was all that was available to him my mental health was prioritized as more important um and my my recovery was more important so we did that um I got some sleep which I was so desperate for I got to sleep and it was wonderful. So we did that for three weeks um, and then things got better very slowly. Oh, wait, no, we also went to a sleep pediatrician. So we were um, with a sleep pediatrician. He was wonderful. I know I've heard so many, um, so many conflicting stories, but we had a really great experience. Um, he basically asked if we'd been offered and if we were interested in any of the um, 
sleep centres. So these are in, in Brisbane, they're government-funded sleep centres that I haven't been to them, so I can't speak to what they do, but I've heard them described as less than gentle. Yeah, they're, they're all Berber, I think, Tresillian and all of that. They're all like, they are modified cried out, which is the Berber method, which is a behaviourism method that works for um, curbing crying at night, um, which is why they're offered. But yeah, anyway, that's. So yeah, we, he asked whether we'd been offered it and whether we were interested. And I said, we have been and we're not interested. And he said, yeah, I think that's the right choice. Your child obviously has reflux. I, it's not a good choice for him. It's not going to work because he's crying because he's in pain and he needs comfort. Um, so that was wonderful and was really validating. Um, the other thing that was really, really validating was he was saying, look, you're the family unit isn't working the the health of the family unit is suffering and we need to do something about that um which again I was so grateful for and he was um I and I was so nervous going into that appointment um, for all of the reasons that you you grabbed your face and went oh no for all of those reasons um I remember Alex and I had a fight on the way because I just was in a I was in an anxiety loop going what if he doesn't believe us what if he tells us to do cry it out what are we going to do what are we going to do and Alex just went stop we have no idea what he's going to do and we need something um so yeah so we went in again I was terrified I was shaking um he could see that the doctor could see the desperation in my eyes and was so caring and attentive um the best thing about that appointment is that Timo was an absolute riot he was in such good mood that day um he yeah, I know. And he always does this. He, I mean, and kids do, right? They perform. <laughs> um, yeah, he had, he had a wonderful time. He was crawling all around and getting into mischief. He got into the doctor's bottom um, filing drawer cabinet, starts just taking papers out, throwing them everywhere. Um, was an absolute whirlwind. Um, he kept trying to grab the doctor's stethoscope um, and the doctor was going, ha-ha, and, like, playing with him and, like, going getting it out of his way and then at the last second he went and just grabbed his glasses off his face <laughs> and it was it was it was so funny and was exactly what I needed it broke the tension so well um but anyway at the end of that appointment we were prescribed melatonin um so uh melatonin for those who don't know is a sleep hormone I think I've previously called other things hormones and I've... And they're chemicals or amino acids. I don't know what melatonin is. Let's just run with yes. it. Yes, I think it's a sleep hormone, but basically um, it puts your body into a very relaxed state. So it's a naturally occurring hormone that your body produces. Um, it's very well synced with light. So um, your pineal gland produces it. It identifies that the, the light of the sun is dropping and then kind of creates you a sleepiness state to help your body um, get ready for sleep. So it doesn't put you to sleep, but it puts you in a state where sleep is more easily attainable. Um, the, the doctor's thinking was that because Timo was in pain, it was disrupting his natural development of his sleep cycles so that um, his brain wasn't able to produce the hormones in a way that was going to be able to facilitate sleep for him. So we put him on that. The first, um, so I think it was three days of melatonin and he started waking three times a night instead of 20. Wow. 
that's just it was beyond my wildest dreams I couldn't have like it, it wasn't always like that and it, it it varied sometimes it was five times or six times but again six times was more than I could have hoped for mm. um and then on, on October 17th um 2020 it was the first time he slept through the night um yeah I'm still waiting but okay I know to, to be fair didn't do it again for many months but it happened it happened that one time but yeah anyway so melatonin was a magic bullet for us um not everyone I did a lot of research before I was happy um for him as far as I could determine the only side effects of it were sleepiness which I was on board with and a wedding and my baby was in nappy so it didn't matter um so but yeah it it was life-changing for us um we can talk more about like in in, in our recovery um, podcasts about coming um weaning him off melatonin which was a huge step for me so he's no longer on melatonin um but that was such an anxiety provoking situation for me because in my mind melatonin equals sleep sleep equals my anxiety is under control so taking that away was really really difficult for me um but yeah so my anxiety oh I forgot the worst bit um similarly before we went to the doctor um one of the one of the key points when we figured this is not we can't keep going this isn't working I and I this is it in my memory like it was yesterday it was so hard and so important to share but I remember my intrusive thoughts and um dark thing dark thoughts were getting to the point where I was not um safe with myself I was starting to really intensely visualize me killing myself and I wasn't confident that I wouldn't I didn't think I was going to but I couldn't convince myself that it wasn't a possibility so I had those thoughts for a few days before I felt like I could share them um but I kind of went right this is too dangerous you need to tell someone so I was on the balcony with my husband the baby was in another room I think with my mother-in-law and I just was crying uncontrollably what's wrong what's wrong I can't tell you like it felt like the words couldn't come out um and then finally I was like I'm not safe I'm not safe I don't trust myself to not hurt myself I I need help I need something um and we had the doctor's appointment the next day um which is I've had suicidal ideation before, um, so it wasn't uncharted territory for me, um, but it was the first time that I was scared it was a possibility. Um, so that was really hard and um, it was hugely, of course, um, terrifying for my husband um, and is still terrifying for him. The idea that um, we could have another child and that could happen again is a, a huge for him. So. That's one of the reasons the second child is not on the cards for us, um, at least right now, at least right now, if not ever. Um, but yeah, so that was massive. Um, yeah, terrible. I don't know how to come back from that or change gears. Um, well, like I think the thing here is that the intrusive thoughts that you experience are a really slippery slope. So we have these really like, not everyone gets intrusive thoughts but if you have an anxious mind you can and so they can be really simple 
things like when I drive over a bridge over water, I um, have this vivid image always of if I'm in that far lane, veering off and falling in. And I wouldn't call that suicidal ideation. I just call it an intrusive thought. Um, because usually what I do after imagining that is imagine how I will get out of a car that's currently sinking in water. And that's my anxious brain. Yeah. Um, and then like as they get more and more dark, um, those intrusive thoughts can permeate into, or not permeate, transition into like potential real life actions where you don't see the border anymore between what is a thought and what is an action. Um, and so it can sneak up on you because um, it can go from something that's so like you know just a random thought it's okay I can get over it to being like is this a thought is this an action and not speaking about that thought not telling anybody about it means that you're just sitting there in your own mind stewing about it and you're not getting the support and help of someone who can tell you and it's it's really amazing that you were able to in that such a desperate state to be like I need to tell someone I'm not safe because most people can't recognize it. Most people don't see it and it's too late before they need to tell someone. And so it's amazing that you were able to do that and had that level of introspection in what is very scary. And it can happen to anyone. Like the thing is, is like we are high functioning people who love our children and love our lives. Um, and it's insane how quickly it can devolve into something so dangerous and scary um so congratulations on being able to do it um and yeah the, the, it, it was this not weird but it was this I had I, my suicidal ideation um permeated lots of levels like it was both the intrusive thoughts and it was I also had the, the layer where I need this to end I can't keep going this has to stop I think the only way out is for me to die so let's do that um, which is horrendous. I again very very lucky and grateful that I had such brilliant and supportive family. Like again, I have another moment that's just seared in my brain. Is my sister um, was over and I was naked in the bathtub feeding the baby and just tears streaming down my face and said, "Bridget, I'm going to die. I need to die. This needs to end." And the pain in her eyes was so awful. Um, and like the thing is, it's real. Like it just, there's just, it's so intense and it's so overwhelming. And I had support. Like I had, I had support. It's not like I was. I have a big family. I have a supportive family. I have a very open family who talks about mental health really openly um, and positively. And there's no shame or stigma. Um, and even then, it's so debilitating. Like it can happen to anyone. It does happen. It happens to so many people. It's one, one in five women experience mental health issues after having had a baby or during the perinatal period. They're just, I don't know. It's, I mean, the fact conversations like this are happening are really, really important. The fact that um, people are feeling more comfortable to share is really important. I think us included could jump us. <laughs> but... The key point, and maybe this is a good transition, is that I'm doing so well. I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life now. Things are amazing. My relationship is the strongest it's ever been. Um, my child is delightful. He makes me explode with happiness on a daily basis. 
um, and it, it can and does get better. It does get better. There is a light at the tunnel, even if you can't see it, knowing that it is there. I know it's hard to envision it. Like it, it's really hard to envision that there could be a light at the end of the tunnel. But after living through it and seeing that like the bad sleep does end, the screaming does end, everything does get a lot easier as your child grows. We have like, we both decided that 18 months is like our we can breathe again moment, right? Like when your baby turns 18 months, no matter how hard of a child they were, it seems to be like a pivotal, pivotal transition point. For us, at least. It's so much better. And life is so much better than I could have ever imagined. And in ways I could imagine. I think, anyway, it's so much better. And uh, in the coming episodes, we'll talk about how things got better, um, what we did to support our mental health, um, and all those kinds of things to help, yeah, just keep the conversation going, share our stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing, Siobhan. That is a very very vulnerable thing to share um i think we won't do meltdown and magic moments this week coincidentally oh do you okay i just share a magic moment just magic moments let's do just magic moments this just week. magic yes yeah we've, we've had two big meltdown moments yeah let's <laughs> good point this episode was one big meltdown moment so let's finish it off with some magic moments exactly so my magic moment was was yesterday morning um, we were in the shower. My little one was building um, Lego because he's obsessed with Lego or Duplo. Um, and he grabbed me by the face, lifted my face up so I was sitting down so I could see him. And he went, love you, and then walked away. <laughs> and it was the most aggressive love you I've had in a long time and it was delightful. Oh, so much magic, so much aggression and so much magic. First time he'd said love you um, unprompted. Oh, that's so kind. Oh, that is special. Well, my magic moment is actually something that my mother-in-law shared with me. She picked my kid up from kindy yesterday. And on the drive home, she said that my daughter said, Miss Mummy, Miss Mummy. And that just like makes my heart burst because she freaking loves her mother-in-law. Oh, no, her grandmother, my mother-in-law. There you go. Like loves her, loves her. Like I couldn't get her to leave last night because she wanted to stay um, at her grandma's. But yeah, that made my heart burst. So amazing. She does love you. Yay. <laughs> Good to know. Um, anyways, let's wrap this one up and we'll do the next episode next week all about how we got better. Um, and if you feel like you need help now, what are some resources we can head to to support that, Siobhan? Yeah, so there's Panda, P-A-N-D-A. Um, is this is the Australian one? Um, they are marvelous. Um, actually, I used a lot of resources when I was in the depths, um, and they were they were really good. Um, some other ones. There's Cope um, in Australia. I think it's cope.org.au. Um, Gidget, um, G-I-D-G-E-T. Um, they are wonderful. There's also Peachtree Parents um, in Brisbane. Um, they're a marvellous resource. They offer um, community groups and um, peer support groups, so um, people who are going through similar things. And then all of their uh, groups are facilitated by people who have lived experiences with um, postnatal depression and anxiety. That's a really wonderful resource. Um, but I'm sure there are so many others, and we'll, in the show notes, um, we'll leave some 
information about where you can get support. Yeah, I will also add, um, because finances are a massive barrier to getting help, but if you live in Australia, there is what's called a mental health care plan where you get, is it 12 free sessions now? Yeah, so um, it used to be six, COVID popped it up to 10, I think it's now 12. Yeah, so there's 12 free sessions with a psychologist. Um, so, well, they're free in that they're bulk build. Sometimes there's a gap, but you can find a psychologist that covers the entire thing. That way you have no barrier to getting help. It is not going to cost you anything. It is completely bulk build. You just go to your GP and ask for a mental health care plan. Find the psychologist that you want to work with and just having a bit of a Google around your local area for someone that feels like the right fit for you is amazing. So explore those. We'll go into depth next week about choosing the right psychologist, um, understanding that you don't always fit with the same people and you might need to find someone different. We'll cover all of that next week. Um, but yeah, you've got help um, and you can always um, pester us in our DMs for us to direct you to resources. If you can't find them as well, we will be able to do that too. So yeah. And if you have any like questions that you want to reach out to us, um, whether um, in comments or um, send us a DM or email us, we're more than happy to share and talk and be whatever support we can. Amazing. Cool. All right. Well, we'll see you next time, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Bye.